It's a bird. It's a plane. It's a magic marker. A, a felt pen. It's a mistake. It's a trap. It's a fucking comedy. It's quiet. Maybe too quiet. It's all happening. It's a good day to die. It's a good day to talk about movies. Welcome back. It is a good day to talk about Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. I am your host, Duncan. Joining me, as always, are Gardner. Hey, boys, let's hit the Long Island Railroad and see what's going on. And Taryn. Hey, how we doing? And joining us today is a special guest. Friend of the pod, Alfonso, is here today to talk to us about the movie that he chose. Alfonso, thanks for being here. Yeah, no problem. Thank you for having me. I'm super stoked. Uh, I'm a fan of the pod and, um, you know, Duncan and I have been speaking outside of the pod, like separately on, on a project. So um, I'm just happy to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. We're excited to have you on. So, yeah. So Alfonso is an actor and also a fellow podcaster. He hosts the podcast Status Effect, which can be found anywhere you listen to podcasts. That's right. That's right. <laughs> awesome. I, yeah, I wasn't sure. I, I figured it was everywhere, but I just wanted to make sure. Yeah. Alfonso, before we get started, we'd love for you to tell the audience a little bit about yourself. Yeah, of course. For starters, how did you get into acting? Yeah, that's a great question. I think, you know, acting is something that a lot of people can do. Everybody has the capacity to act to different degrees, but I think the best actors, I'm not necessarily putting myself in those shoes, but I'm just saying like, you know, for, for me, it's people that have a huge imagination and they've been using that imagination since they were kids. And I know that for me, when I was growing up, I loved pretending I was other people. Like, and it, it wasn't even like superheroes. It, it wasn't even, it was just stories in my head. Like I had a, a big backyard. I grew up in Los Angeles and we had a large backyard and there was like, I would be crawling through the grass pretending I was a soldier in World War II at like nine years old. Like, what? Like, why am I thinking that? But I just was. And I remember going up to my dad and I was like, Dad, can I say hell? Can I say hell and damn? Like, can I say that? Because like, and he's like, why? And I'm like, because I'm in this scene right now. And I just, I want to make sure I can say stuff like that. And he's like, okay, go ahead. And so I was just super into that stuff, like wearing makeup and, and kind of getting dressed and wearing the part. And I was always into being in plays at school, but it was something that didn't seem real to me. It didn't seem like a, a possibility for a career. I always viewed it as like, I love this stuff, but it wasn't something I, I could see myself doing because it, it wasn't necessarily something that my family did. It wasn't something that, you know, my dad envisioned for me. He wanted me to be an engineer. So, you know, like I kind of put that off to the side and um, it really wasn't until high school uh, and it was specifically my junior year that I, there was a casting call for Greece, the musical. And I was like, okay, I'll, I'll be in Greece. And, you know, I'll, I'll try it out. My mom loves that movie. She's like, you're going to be John Travolta. I'm like, mom, I, like his name is Danny Zuko. And I, <laughs> like, I may or may not be him. Like, I, I'm, I'm obviously going to just try my best. So um, I went out for the role. I, you know, I just, I read for the part and I ended up getting Kaniki. And so if you've ever seen the movie, Kaneki's like his right-hand man, like Danny Zuko's like the cool guy, Kaneki's like his right-hand man. Now the movie takes some liberties with the original musical because they give all the songs to John Travolta. <laughs> like they give him all the songs. So, you know, he was the big star at that time. 
But in the original play, Kaniki actually sings the Grease Lightning song, the Go Grease Lightning, that song. And so when I found out I was singing that song, I was like, oh, cool. Like, I feel like I actually, you know, came on top here. And um, they gave us a car. Like, they actually rented out this small little car that I would drive onto the, the stage. And I remember opening night, they opened up the curtains and I drove this car out on stage. I didn't say anything yet. And the audience erupted into applause. I was like freaking out, you know, like this, this 13 year old, 14 year old kid. I'm like, oh my gosh, like this is really happening. And then uh, we sang the song and then there was another like standing ovation. And um, I just, that's when I knew I was like, this is, this is what I want to do. This is, this is where I want to live for the rest of my life is like in this moment. And ever since then, it's just been trying to get into it as much as I can. Maybe my favorite play that I've ever done was actually my senior year in high school. And so even though that was such a long time ago, it just, the play that we did was called The Diviners and it had such a huge impact on me just as a human because it challenged me to really be vulnerable. Uh, it was a play about, uh, and if you ever look it up, it's, it's fantastic. It's a play about this boy who has developmental issues and yet he can divine water. Hence the reason why it's called The Diviner. He can kind of walk around and back in the day, they would do this. They would like to find a well or something. They would use like these sticks and they would like use them to find water so they can make, you know, get a well in the town. And so he, could, he had that ability, but he was afraid of water. And he was afraid of water because when he was younger, he fell into a river and his mom went in to save him, but she died saving him. And he suffered brain damage because he had, he lacked oxygen for too long. So he's afraid of water and yet he can find it. And the town is like, you know, they're just dealing with this boy and they're just trying to figure out how to, how to best raise him. And the character that I played was this preacher or he was an ex-preacher who came to town and the town is like, oh, you're going to save this boy. And I remember going on set and like, you know, no one would believe that I was a man. So I started growing out my beard. That was when I really started doing like method acting. I grew up my beard. I actually, uh, the play takes place sometime in like the thirties or something like that, like uh, around the, the great depression. So like I stopped eating as much. So I, I, I started losing weight so that my clothes were like hanging off of me. And I started reading things like the Bible just so I could get into character. And by the time the play happened, people thought I was one of the teachers. They're like, why, why is one of the teachers like in the play? And it's like, no, that's one of the students. Like, you know, like he's, he's on, on here. And I just, that play, at, you know, when we finally performed it, it was such a heartbreaking play because it's the relationship between this preacher and this young man and how the young man saves his life. And not necessarily from a, like, like he's saving his life physically, but just spiritually, uh, this journey that they go on together and this is not even a spoiler. This is how the play opens. The boy dies. The boy dies. And that's the, like, one of the first lines in the play. But how we get there, the journey, right? It's not about the destination. It's the journey is so impactful. And I remember every time we performed that play, people would come up to me in tears and say, like, this really moved me. This really spoke to me as a human being. And I just remember going, like, this is what I want to do. Like, this is the artistry. Um, this is why we go to the movies. This is why we go to plays is because we see ourselves on the stage we see ourselves in the film and when a film really speaks to us in that way that's when it's it's that much more powerful and it's that much more impactful and that's what we hold on to these movies like listening to the episode that you had before on goodwill like goodwill hunting is like an impactful play because it is about growth and becoming a young man and figuring out who you are in this world and so like the reason this impacts us is when it's true 
And so ever since then, I've always been like striving for that. I did take a break from acting for a little bit because my daughter was born. So I want to make sure I was there for her. Um, but now that she's getting a little bit older, she's going to start seeing her dad in things like maybe short films, maybe some plays. Probably like my the biggest thing I was in, I was an extra in The Dark Knight Rises. Uh, I was an extra, so no, no speaking role, no speaking line. Um, it was an open casting call and uh, it was a ton of fun. It was long hours. I had to be there at five in the morning and finished at 11 p.m. I did that two days in a row. <laughs> so, like, it was brick outside. It was so cold, but it was a lot of fun. And, and so like, it's just, it's been a part of me ever since I was young and, and I couldn't imagine myself living my life without it. So that's a little bit about my background. <laughs> it's a great answer. I'm, I feel like I know your entire journey now, or yeah. maybe not exactly, but it's, yeah. you know, I feel very enlightened by that answer. So thank mm -hmm. you. Yeah, thank you. So we mentioned that you're also a fellow podcaster, just like us. Mm -hmm. What made you get into that? I think podcasting is a fun way to, I, and I think, you know, you may align with this. I think podcasting is a great way for you and your friends or people that, you know, have good discussions with you and maybe challenge your views, you know, and then record it and then just share it with the world and actually see what other people have to say. It just cr creates a dialogue. And it's uh, a really cool format because it's not super formal or anything like that. It can be done in a very informal fashion. And so you, when um, my friend and I, we, we worked together, we were just on lunch and we were in our break room and we were just speaking about video games. Like just, hey, like if, if there was a video game you like or a video game you could forget, you know, which one would you do and whatever. And it got really heated, but respectful. Like we never, like we never make it toxic. We never attack each other, never make it personal because it's your opinion. Like you're entitled to your opinion. So we, we were just talking and people like stopped eating to listen to us. They were just like, hold on a second. Like, we want to hear what you have to say. And at the end of it, we spoke for like 20, 30 minutes. People kept coming up to us going, you guys should like record this and throw it up online. You guys should have a podcast. And I have tried this like three times before. And it's always a failure because scheduling like the group together is always a challenge, figuring out when do we meet, what time. And I feel like the bigger the group, the harder it is. So what we did was, it was just he and I, his name is Joe Roman, really good friend of mine. And we were like, let's do it. Just the two of us. Let's just, let's just do it. Fuck it. We're going to do it. So we decided to start putting it together. And we came on, came upon the name status effect because, you know, everything in life affects us. You know, like in video games, the term status effect is when something either gives you a buff, right? It enhances your abilities, it protects you or it helps you, or it hurts you, right? An enemy can hit you with poison or, you know, hit you with sleep, right? Or berserk, which drives you crazy. Everything in our lives do that, does that, right? So it's like movies, books, games, everything does that, even memories and experiences. So we're like, oh, that'd be like cool. You know, we're, we're kind of focusing on pop culture mostly. And, and we want to focus on that, not just our opinion on it, but actually how it affects us. So sometimes we get really vulnerable on the podcast. Sometimes we even talk about mental health. Like we don't shy away from stuff like that because we think it's important. It's important to make that part of the conversation as well. And so we just, we've been doing it for a bit now. We're on like episode 18. And so we're just like having a blast. We're just having a freaking blast every time we talk. So now that we know a little bit about you, can you tell us why you chose the movie that we are discussing today? Oh, man. Eternal sunshine of the spotless mind. Dude, get ready for another long answer. <laughs> Strap in, fellas. So um, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, um, I saw it when it came out. I saw it in theaters. And um, it really kind of going back to what I said about acting and how 
watching something that really speaks to you and, and is true to you. I feel like that film has stuck with me because in the different stages of my life from being a young man to, to being a man in college, to being a father, to being in a, in a really long relationship. And, you know, I'm actually not with the, the mother of my daughter. Like we broke up and I'm, I'm now with someone else and we're in a very long, long-term relationship. We're, we're together for like nearly 10 years and she's been in my daughter's life. Like watching this movie and the different stages of my life multiple times, this movie speaks to me in different ways. But ultimately what, it, what I learned from it was that life is pain and love is life. Therefore, love is pain. And even the bad memories are worth it for the good ones. And it's not worth it to try to forget them because they make you who you are. All your experiences make you who you are. And the people that you have in your life, whether good or bad, impact you and influence you in some way. And to remove them from your life is removing part of you. So going through my life and identifying who those people are, sometimes it was family. When I was a young man, it was family. Um, coming out to New York by myself, you know, it was friends, like friends that maybe betrayed me, friends that backstabbed me. Being in that relationship, that was very toxic. And, and even though we had a kid together, it was like, maybe this isn't good for us. And, you know, leaving that relationship, you know, you're like, man, Maybe, you know, I'm, I'm regretful. Maybe we shouldn't have done this. Maybe this, you know, now we have a kid. Like, no, like, no, I'm, I'm grateful for that time. And it's helped me become a better person and be a better father. And all of those memories are things that I would never erase for anything. And this movie is about a person's journey to remove pain from their life. And in doing so realizes how painful that process is and regrets that. And, you know, we're going to get into some of the technical aspects of the film, or at least, I, you know, I'm definitely going to bring up some things that really stood out to me on my, I don't know how many times this, this has been and I've watched it, but things that have stuck, stood out to me just in the, the way that the film is shot and cut together and edited that really do a good job of illustrating that longing for those memories. And so this movie has stuck with me throughout the years. And I hope, you know, now that you've seen it, that it sticks with you. I think it's, it's a very impactful film. It's definitely one of my favorites. And the other thing too, the other thing that drew, drew me to it was Jim Carrey. Like I love Jim Carrey. When I was younger, I actually wanted to be like him. Like when I was imagining myself as an actor, I was like, I wanted to be him and Ace Ventura. Like I want to be this like knucklehead. Um, so watching this different side to him, was also impactful too because I'm like wow there's like different sides of people and there's a deep sadness in some of the happiest people and, and I felt I, I aligned with that too like I used to try to put on a happy face but deep down I was suffering right depression whatever it was so this movie speaks to me on multiple levels. I think it's interesting you mentioned the Goodwill Hunting episode earlier because there's parallels when you talk about a comedic actor making those dramatic turns mm -hmm. and obviously both of of those actors, Jim Carrey and Robin Williams, did it multiple times, but these are two maybe of their most critically acclaimed performances of those of those examples that were out there. Although I think that Robin Williams probably has more than more than one that were critically acclaimed. And yeah. so does obviously Truman Show is the same with Jim Carrey. But I mean those are the only two I can really think of for Jim Carrey. Um The Majestic. <laughs> is there I, I haven't seen that movie. Uh, that movie when that movie came out, people were like kind of bashing Jim Carrey. They're like, this is a terrible film. But if you watch it, it's actually pretty good. Really? 
yeah, yeah. He's the best part of the film too. So before we go any further, we do have to do a quick spoiler warning. This movie has been out for years, but we're going to do a spoiler warning for Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. If you don't want it spoiled, stop listening now. Go watch it and get back to us later. For everyone else, that was your spoiler warning. Now that we've done that, we can get into our initial broad thoughts on the movie. Alfonso, I know you kind of just went into it, so I don't know if you have anything else you want to add about your just broad ideas of the movie. I don't know if you want to bring up any of the topics that you're maybe going to want to delve into later on, but if not, let me know. Well, actually, I'm more excited to hear from all of you, to be honest, because I want to hear how it impacted you and what you took away from it. Like that right now, I'm just like, just super eager to hear your thoughts. Awesome. So please, please jump in. Okay. So we're going to start with you, Gardner, then. All right. Yeah. I mean, everything, Alfonso, that you said about this movie, like I definitely took away from it. To me, it's definitely a meditation on like comfort versus growth. And the idea that like by eliminating the memory of past mistakes, you doom yourself to repeat those same mistakes. And obviously that's viewed through the microcosm of their relationship. If you don't accept those painful memories, you're doomed to be trapped in the same toxic cycle over and over and over again. Um, which is kind of like the bittersweet nature of the ending of this film, uh, at least what I took away from it. I think, you know, they get back together and they probably go through that same thing at least multiple times. And uh, like we said before the episode, I, I like to read the IMDb trivia on every movie I watch. And apparently that was kind of the like original ending of this film is that like they go through this process over and over and over again and all, always find their way back to each other but it's they always end up breaking up and erasing the memories of one another it is a vastly important lesson that i think every human needs to learn because we all have relationships in our lives whether they be romantic or friendships or familial relationships they are going to have not inherently toxic not necessarily toxic but unsavory elements within them and you have to navigate those and deal with them and address them in an honest and open manner. If you repress them or just like try to forget them, you know, act like they never existed, then you don't grow, right? And you, you retreat into your comfort zone. And I think that's a major theme of this film is explore what is outside of your comfort zone. And it will make you a better person. It will make you who you are and who you are is fantastic. Right. I don't know. It's just, I'll say I am a sucker for Charlie Kaufman movies. Like I just love his movies, Synecdoche, New York adaptation. I mean, those are two of my favorite movies ever being John Malkovich is just astounding. So you can, you can feel Kaufman's fingerprints all over this movie. Obviously he wrote it. And it just, it's just one of those movies that, like you said, uh, Alfonso, it just it sticks with you and you're going to think about it over and over and over again. And as soon as I finished it, I couldn't start it again right away. I had some work stuff to do, but I wanted to. And I, I want to be like you where I just like watch it all the time over and over again. Uh, I would get a physical copy, but I don't have a, a Blu-ray or DVD player. But I know, Duncan, you're giving me that face. Look, 
I didn't get the Xbox Series X. I got the Series S. There's no disk drive. I'm a digital guy these days. But yeah, I mean, this is just one of those movies that I don't even think like you don't even need to have been in like a long term romantic relationship like these characters. You could just have had any kind of relationship with any human ever. And there are elements of this that will stick with you. I can't say enough good things about this movie and I've got to stop talking or I'll just keep talking for the rest of the episode. So Karen, I want to hear your thoughts. I mean, being, I'm a big proponent of looking to glean a positive from any experience, right? Like obviously everybody, like you were saying, relationships, not everybody, you know, you don't have to have experienced some traumatic relational breakdown or whatever, but everybody has something that they would like to just like, if you could pinpoint it like, yeah, I wish I could forget that. But knowing that, those experiences are what shape you and what make you. And then, you know, being able to glean the benefits of having experienced those things are the potentials for growth. And obviously like that's a big focus for this movie. But when you're talking about a relationship, it's like, that's part of what makes relationships kind of magical because you experience those things together and you grow together. And then you're able to use those prior experiences to deepen what you have. And if your first instinct is to just rip that, like pull the cord, then you're depriving yourself of what could be, right? And we see that like they're magically drawn back together. And I, I, I really enjoyed the movie. I love time jumpy movies and they kind of put you in a mental pretzel. And I mean, before they even start doing that, the interaction on the train, I was like, this girl's got me, like, I don't know what's going on. Like she's putting me on edge, but yeah, overall, I love Jim Carrey as well. And it's fun to see him play a more serious role. Like, he, I think he plays a tortured soul really well because of his emotive face. You know, it's not just for humor. But I'm excited to get into it because I'm looking forward to rewatching this movie once we kind of break down some of the things I know I probably missed in the snappy movie tricks. Well, Tarn, it sounds like you have a little bit more of like an optimistic reading of the end of the movie, the way you talked about how if you eliminate those memories, then you deprive yourself of what could come afterwards, right? When, when they like, quote unquote, get back together at the end of the movie or, you know, beginning, speaking of the time jumps. So do you feel like they actually do get back together at the end? Do you think that's going to be a healthy relationship? I mean, I have faith in Joel having seen his interactions with, what, what is her name again? I'm drawing a blank. Clementine. With Clementine, right. How did I, Tangerine Clementine. Having seen his memories with her, like he seems like a very genuine dude. You know, I feel like that's something, you know, he was like, that's what I love about you is your impulsivity. Like this brain wipe is kind of on her, not to like put blame either direction, but his reaction to what she did was, you know, to kind of mirror that because you do see him following her lead in a lot of the more, impulsive decisions and the things that they were doing together and he doesn't know how to you know do without that but i feel with the knowledge that they both did that and like the tape and whatever i guess i do have a more optimistic reading of the outcome i'm an optimist whatever i am too i am too so don't worry. <laughs> i've gotten there i've gotten there it's like again there multiple stages of my life when i watch this film so i was i didn't always take it with uh like that, that I was like, well, I got to take it with a grain of salt. I feel like there's something in here. There's like, you know, something, but the, the optimism is definitely something where I'm on right now. And I feel like his tragic relationship is the one that he references previous. You know, I, I, I would like to think that he's not just 
fallen in and out of love and not finding anybody. I think it's interesting to hear you say, Taran, that he's this good boyfriend or whatever, that he's this genuine guy. I, don't, I think he's genuine, but I do think that he's making mistakes in that relationship. And I think we see some of those mistakes and I think he sees them too. And it also that leads into a point that I think is also interesting where it's, he jumps from like in that Montauk scene, he jumps from, I wish I would have stayed. Like, I wish I could have changed what, what happened in the past to, I wish we had a second chance which is the better, more healthy way to look at it, I think, and is also the more healthy way to look at it than, oh, I should just delete this from my memory. That's not a positive outcome either. I do think that maybe he's a little more mature than me because there's things like, I would definitely change if I could go back in certain senses. I think that that's maybe something that everyone probably would, even if you, you know, I feel like it's easy to say like, oh, no regrets or this, that, and the other, and the things make you who you are. And I think that a lot of things do make you who you are, but I think that, that, like, if given the chance or given the opportunity, I think a lot of people would make certain tweaks, if anything, to hopefully lead into the same path, but maybe with different outcomes um, in certain aspects. And I think that probably a lot of people would have that when they're talking about a relationship, which is exactly what this movie centered on. I think, Gardner, you said, like, it's got Charlie Kaufman's fingerprints all over it. And I think that his, his movies all... It's interesting because he's obviously not directing these until... Synecdoche, he's not directing the movies. So it's interesting that they can have almost even a visual style sometimes that I feel like plays out on screen that I I, I feel like I'm watching not only a storyline that's written by him, but it just is cinematically presented in a way that almost maybe it's like the story calls for it. And that's why they're being presented that way. But I mean, of the films you mentioned, those are actually the ones that I was going to mention in our little rundown that we're going to do in a couple of minutes. But being John Malkovich is like one of my favorite films of all time. Absolutely blown away by it. When I first saw it, I was like, are you fucking kidding me? You can do this? You can get John Malkovich to do this as well? Like, amazing, phenomenal. That's the kind of shit I want. That's the kind of stuff that I love. And this movie, I think, is a little bit, like, less on the sci-fi aspect of it and more on the actual relationship, which I think is probably best for the story it's telling. So that's just a thought. The editing in it is, I think, phenomenal. The things that they do visually are just stunning, some of the stuff, and especially for 2003, and I think maybe they're doing some tricks that let them get away with not showing some of the things that would be more obvious or showing it quickly and stuff like that or showing it dark. And so I think they get away with stuff like that, but it's just incredibly well done, in my opinion, some of the special effects. And We'll get into more of the specifics of that. I've kind of, again, I think we all kind of just want to talk about this so much. So each of our intros is just us blabbering on about how much we love it and all the different things we love it. So I'm doing that right now. I apologize to the audience. We will get into the specifics of it. But first, I do want to do a little bit of a background on it just real quick. Before you jump into that, I, I actually wanted to, to respond to something that you said. You were talking about how you feel like any, everybody would want to go back and maybe fine tune maybe some some decisions. And, you know, like there's always a silver lining, right? You, you know, you can always find the silver lining of your decisions kind of bring you and, and take you to where you are. But I feel like sometimes this movie plays with the idea of time. They were forgetting each other very quickly. It was all like a reaction. It was like, this is, this is, it, you know, people use alcohol and drugs and stuff like to forget and feel better, right? It's like, it, this is what I'm going to do right now to feel better, right? It's all reactive to protect yourself. And so, but given time and given time to reflect, 
a lot of times you actually look at those decisions or you look at those moments and you find that they're, you know, not to be super optimistic, but just there is some good in that. There's always something that brings you to kind of where you're supposed to be in some ways, you know, and, and not to get to, you know, being a father, but, but being a dad, like took a lot of bad decisions, a lot of weird like moments in my life and bad relationships and, and things like finding myself in New York, being depressed, needing to be with somebody, but yet being a father has been the best adventure of my life. It's the best thing that's ever happened. If, any, if everything got taken away from me, but I could still be a dad, I'd be fine with that. Right. And it's, it's like, I love my daughter more than anything. Right. And it's and that, like having her, I like, I, I'll take any pain that came before, like, give it to me a hundred times. Like if I have to live this cycle again, over and over again, that's fine. Cause I'm just looking forward to being with her again. Right. So like, I, I hear, I hear that, but I also like of the mind that you give it the distance and you can reflect on it. That's the thing that makes you wise. If you go back and fix it, it's no longer something you can learn from. I, I do think that's interesting because one could argue that maybe Jim's character should have never had the procedure done. And he should have just, like you said, moved on, felt dealt with the pain and let that be the growth. But, you know, essentially it's kind of like a wasted year and he's going to potentially fall into the exact same pitfalls. Right. I, I know I, a uh, relative optimist about it, but who's to say that those tapes are going to paint the complete picture for them and lay the roadmap for how they avoid their previous, you know, shortcomings. Yeah. I, I can uh, see where you're coming from in terms of, you know, letting life happen. Yeah. I, yeah, I can't wait to like, when we get to the ending, I'll kind of like talk more on that stuff. But I think the ending, the lines between Clem and Joel when they're in that hallway are the most impactful of that film. So we'll, but we'll get there. We'll get there. So Okay, go ahead, Duncan. I'll, I'll pass it back to you. Thank you for, for letting me jump in. Absolutely. So Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, as we mentioned, was written by Charlie Kaufman and directed by Michael Gondry. We've already mentioned this, but Kaufman is known for the films being John Malkovich, Adaptation, Synecdoche, New York, and other things. I think those are the most lauded ones of his career, probably. He had a pretty polarizing film that came out recently, and I'm thinking about ending things. So this film was released in 2003 and it stars Jim Carrey as Joel and Kate Winslet as Clementine, Kirsten Dunst, Mark Ruffalo, Elijah Wood, Tom Wilkinson, Jane Addams, and David Cross also make appearances in supporting roles. This is a romantic comedy with a sci-fi twist. We mentioned that the sci-fi element is that in this world there exists a technology that can erase people's memories of certain people, certain other people. The film was well received by critics, winning the Academy Award for Best Screenplay and earning Winslet a nomination in the Best Actress category. But who cares what critics think? We're here to talk about what we think. And now that we've given the background, let's talk about the specifics of this film. So the film opens up with Jim Carrey waking up and narrating his day and going to work and then deciding not to go to work. And we see him make that jump around to go out to Montauk. He says, I don't know why, uh, but I, I made the decision to go out to Montauk. I'm not an impulsive person, he says, which I think is actually an important line just to his character. And it's, he's, he's letting you know right from the beginning. And it's, we've already talked about the time element of it, but it's interesting in, in that we're, this is our first look at the story, but it's obviously not the beginning of his story at all. And it's, um, Interesting in other ways because it is the beginning of a certain part of his story, a certain chapter of his story, actually. So I don't know if we want to talk about any of this because he gets on the train and obviously this is where 
we start and end. It's the bookend of the of the film, I guess. Not the exact bookend, but it's like the framing device. Right, yeah. Yeah. I love this opening. I love how quickly it tells us about Joel and who he is and what he's concerned with. I particularly love the line where he's I I believe he's walking on the beach and we're still hearing his narration and he says maybe I should get back together with Naomi. She was nice. Nice is good. Right? And that kind of that gives us a very early hint of the theme of the film, right? And what is it like they say in all the screenwriting courses, like you have to establish your theme by page five or whatever. And I feel like they did that. Like nice is good. Like nice is comfortable. Nice is safe, right? And as we progress through the film, like is nice, is safe, is comfortable, really what is most important? I think the thesis of the film is that no, it's not. But I like that they introduce us to that early. And it also just the narration and everything. I think narration can be very spotty in film, but this gives us a good indication also early on of like how neurotic his character can be. And it just, uh, from the get go, I was just enraptured and I could hardly pause, you know, unless my dog needed to go outside until the movie was over. One of the things that stands out to me about that intro, watching it again for, I don't know how, what time this is but is the cuts it's fragmented everything it just jumps so fast he wakes up he's like in his bed he's looking at you know his pajamas he's outside he's looking at the car they don't even do like a long take of him going in to get this paper and this note that he's writing up he just has the note all of a sudden and he's putting in the windshield then the car door closes and then he's driving then he's at the train station and then he sees the montauk train then it shows him running, shows him running down, and then he's in the train. Like, it's very fragmented, and it's kind of establishing a tempo for the film, you know? And, and again, like, the film deals with memory, and our, our memories are fragmented. We don't always remember, like, the entire day. Remember, like, sections and moments and brief things that happen that stand out to us. But even in the mundane, like, it's just super fragmented because nothing stands out yet. Everything is, like, just super quick. So I just, I really like just how that rhythm for the, all that stuff is just happening super fast when you're, when you're watching all of those establishing shots and, and, and setting, setting up Jim Carrey's character as Joel. I, I think it's brilliant. And then we'll get to like, as the story begins to progress, how like those cuts change a little bit. So I just, I like that opening a lot. And Gardner, that line that you mentioned about Naomi's nice, nice is good to me is very Kaufman. I don't know what it is about it, but it's just the way of, Maybe it's even the, the repeating of nice as well. That is, it just seems like a line that he would write. I don't, I don't know. I don't know what it is about it. It's got a cadence to it, I think. And it's kind of like the tempo you were just talking about. The whole film, again, it feels like a movie made by him. And, and, and again, he's not making it in the sense of directing it or like editing it or anything or acting in it, obviously. He's the writer, but it, it's got his fingerprints all over it. Well, it, it makes me want to read his screenplays. Like I've seen his movies the ones that he's written, but I haven't read the actual text. And there's got to be an element in that text, like you were saying earlier about how they look visually sim similar. That comes from the writing. Nothing is filmed that isn't first written, right? So, you know, without derailing this episode into a Charlie Kaufman episode, I think he has a very specific language 
that he delivers in these screenplays, not just through the dialogue, but through the, the direction as well. And it translates into something that is like a coherent body of work where thematically they're all kind of intertwined. And having seen his other films, but not having seen this one, and I haven't seen, I think I'm thinking of ending things either. It's just, you know, like I said in the beginning, it just feels like it has his fingerprints all over it. And from the beginning, I was like, okay, I'm being rubbed into like a Kaufman world right now. And I can't wait to see what else is going to happen. And as the movie progressed, it progressed pretty much um, in a Kaufman way, which is to say not at all how I expected it to, but also exactly how I expected it to. Hard to explain to someone who hasn't seen Kaufman before, but once you have, I feel like that would make sense. I don't know. Tarn, Tarn, have you seen any Kaufman movies before? What was your reading? Nah, and you're going to make me sound like I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know what you mean by by saying that, which I don't know if you want to enlighten me using some specific aspects of this movie or not. But he's just he's just very existential. Okay, it deals a lot with like the human condition and what it means to be human and, and the emotions of humanity, I guess. I was just going to say Adaptation is a, is a great film. If you, if you like this movie and you go watch Adaptation, like you'll kind of see that. You'll see like the style, like just like, oh, okay. I can see that there's like a, a thread that he's kind of weaving because it, it's just conversation about humanity, how humans can be and just kind of accepting our folly, right? Just accepting that like we're, we're not perfect. There's like something like really awesome about his, his writing. It's just, he humanizes the characters so much. I don't know if I'm off base in connecting these two, but like you were saying, the pace at the beginning where we're seeing Joel as he's moving through his morning, we're seeing like, like you were saying, like the things that are standing out, we're seeing his perspective. Like what is, what are the things on his day to day that are like capturing his eyes? Right. I don't, I don't know, but it's like, you're on the ride with him on his morning and then it kind of takes a different direction. I was unsure of where this movie was going. You know, it obviously doesn't feel like it's going to a sci-fi, you know, in your brain, thing from his like initial routine i'm curious trying as someone who hasn't seen any kaufman before when we did the time jump in the very beginning i think it's 17 or 18 minutes before the uh, opening credits actually roll and i believe that's when the time jump actually occurs did you clock that at all or were you surprised by and i know i'm jumping ahead but we said spoilers at the beginning so i feel fine doing that were you surprised by the fact that that looped back in at the end? Or did you did you see that coming? The scrape on the car caught my eye. And then when that, that kind of tied the bow on it, when we get multiple perspectives and we see it all happening. But no, nah, I was not prepared for a jump there. And even though I'm this, I might be jumping back a little bit right now, but we were talking about adaptation a little bit and we were talking about the opening narration and we were talking about Kaufman's style and his fingerprints being all over this. And... I think even some of the line deliveries seem similar to Nick Cage adaptation in that narration style. And I don't know if it's, again, it's just the dialogue and that's the, that's the way it is. It's like snappy dialogue almost. It's not snappy in the sense that like a Wes Anderson is or. Yeah. It's not Sorkin snappy. No. Or like, cause there's different types of snappy too. Cause you could argue like Tarantino's got his own type of snappy. Right. And like I just said, Wes Anderson's totally got a, he's got a quirky snappy type of dialogue that's his own unique version of that as well. I think that Kaufman has the same thing, but it's different because he's not usually directing and he's not directing the ones that we're talking about right now. Whereas those other, 
those other directors are obviously directing as well as writing them. So I just think that's interesting. And I definitely didn't clock the jumping around at first. I was like a little jarred and I knew that there was stuff going on in this, but I was like, okay, because also the pacing, I think adds to that. Like you were saying, we mentioned the pacing. I think because it's very quick at points and it's kind of jumping around in that, like it's kind of cutting you from place to place a little quickly at certain points, I think, and not giving you the in-between shots that kind of makes it gloss over a little bit when they're like, Oh, we're really, we're really jumping now. We're really just doing a quick cut to something, a completely different time period now. And it kind of can gloss right over. And I think they do some smart things in how they show that too. And they also are smart with the way they use Valentine's day and showing you like, that's a, I'm sure in a rewatch that's got breadcrumbs in there and where you can kind of be like grounded in like, okay, I'm like, you can, you can like be like, all right, I'm here now. I know I'm here now because I'm, because of the, the timing and stuff. And then I, there's stuff that definitely went over my, my head. I like to do what I do often is I'll, I'll have like 45 minutes to an hour left uh, after a viewing or I'll have like 45 minutes to an hour before a recording and I'll throw on the first, however long I have of the film again. So I watched the first about 45 minutes again of this film before recording this today, but I haven't seen the whole film again. So I, I, I don't have that perspective yet, but tons of interesting things that we've already touched on so far and we're again 18 minutes into the film and that is yeah 18 minutes and I, I noticed that i love when a movie has i don't know why it's it's, it's it can be considered a cheap trick that just gets me going for some reason but having a late title card it just oh does that get the juices flowing i don't know if anyone ever watched good omens there's an episode of good omens that drops the title card about 45 minutes into the episode when there's about eight minutes left in the, in the episode and it's amazing i was like when they dropped it i was like I totally forgot that they never did it. They never did the opening intro. And then they did it. And I was like, oh, hell yeah. It was like, they did a whole episode. It was amazing. Uh, I don't know why that kind of stuff gets me going, but like 18 minutes obviously isn't that extreme, but it is cool. I like that kind of stuff. Pretty extreme for a movie, <laughs> I feel like. Right. But if you think about like percentage wise, like it's not three quarters of the runtime is what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. You know, like when you think about like it being 45 minutes into a, hour-long show or you know less than an hour-long show it's like wow that's really like most like it's the whole episode is basically not for it yeah 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 i completely agree with you there i wanted to talk about i guess i'm, I'm trying to find a way to segue into what alfonso wants to talk about which is i'm looking at my notes and i have a note that's like um uh, <laughs> my points are this is one of the most manic scenes i've ever seen which is when uh, she and Joel like go back to her apartment and have a drink together and she's just going on and on and on and I'm thinking like is she gonna be a manic pixie dream girl but no she's she's the antithesis of the uh, manic pixie dream girl and then uh, I have go take a drink with her Joel and oh nice he went he went in for the drink and then I love the editing here it's very frenetic fast-paced it's fantastic and I know, Alfonso, you wanted to talk about the editing specifically. So I, um, I want to hear your opinion on like the first act, I suppose. Yeah. The, uh, so like all of this leading up to that, that, that title card, right, like is so well done because the cuts, if you're watching that cut, like it's happening so fast. It's almost like staccato, like in music where it's just boom, 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 boom. Like they're not, they're not lingering on anything. Even when they're in the train car, you can hear the conversation almost feel disjointed. 
because they're just like, it's almost like they're puzzle pieces trying to figure out how do they fit together. And you get that sense from not only the dialogue and not only the great acting, and also like what I love about that intro too, as they're establishing the two characters, is they're also playing against type, right? We have Kate Winslet, who's playing Clementine, who's kind of brash and like, you know, she's like kind of <laughs> almost being intimidating, right? He's like, oh, I wouldn't think that about you. Well, why, why, why wouldn't you think that about me? Like, you, you know, you don't know me. And then he's like, oh, 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 oh. and he's super timid, right? He's super reserved. He's like, so not the Jim Carrey that we're used to. And they accomplished that a lot in even the, the way that they do the framing. There's a lot of, in the beginning, when they're talking about Joel and him wanting to forget, there's a lot of close-ups, a lot of close-ups on his face because he's like, he's confused or he's in pain. Like when they do that, like, you know, I, I'm jumping a little ahead, but when they jump to him in the car after the title, you know, they, they're saying it's eternal strength out of his father's mind, they drop that title card. He's in the car and he's like holding onto the string and he's crying. Like he's just crying, like there's no tomorrow. But before that moment, like, you know, they're, they're in the apartment and they, they like, they're on him and he's super uncomfortable and he's sitting on that couch and they're just on his face. And then they cut to her face and she's like, you know, Hey, but they keep jumping around. Like they're jumping around that apartment, like nobody's business. And even when he's leaving, it's fast too. She goes, you know, uh, when you get home, can you call me? And he's like, okay. And then he's outside and she opens up the window. Like it's a very fast cut. It's like, Hey, you know, and, and just wish me happy Valentine's day. And he's like, uh, okay. And then he's like walking away and he's like kind of looking back just all of that stuff for me does a really good job of creating tension. Like in, as the audience member, you're like, it's building momentum to something and we don't even know. And then it hits us with that title card. Like, it's like we hit a wall. We're like, whoa. And the, the thing I, I find super brilliant about that, like that editing process, right? Is that it's super fast. Then we hit this wall and it's meant to keep us confused because when we see him, we don't actually know, we know it's a time jump, but we think it's years or time after that beginning, not before. Like we're not thinking this because he's wearing kind of similar clothing. He's wearing that beanie, he's in his car and you're like, oh, okay. So this must've been maybe a few weeks later or maybe a month later, or a year later, you're expecting that. But this is like, no, they've been together. Wait, what the heck, what's going on? Like, huh? And even in that, that stuff, they're also doing like a staccato, like well, after the crying intro, it begins that kind of staccato thing again. And I, it was just something that stood out to me on this, this rewatch is that the tempo was really, really important at the beginning to keep us moving, but also keep us confused. Yeah, I had that note as well. I love how consistently this script brings up questions. I love when movies keep me confused for the first 25 to 30 minutes because when they're bringing up a lot of questions, I'm like, oh, these are going to get answered later on, right? And when they don't get answered, maybe I get pissed, depending on the quality of everything else in the film. Maybe I'm like, oh, okay, you didn't need to answer that. That's fine. You know, Paul Thomas Anderson, you can get away with that. Uh, but in general, I think that's like a really, really important element of screenwriting. So I, going back to, I want to read the actual text because my God, is this like scientific in how per like how perfectly it brings these things up for them to pay off later? Yeah, I think the payoffs are definitely there in this one, which is what you're saying, Gardner. And everything, it's done in a way where you're like, 
Alright. Okay. When it finally when you when when he wakes up and you're seeing him, for example, like going through that day again and, and it clicks, I think that's that's great. Or the pages ripped out in the journal. I mean, there's all kinds of little kernels that are are, are sprinkled throughout. Right. That come back later and make a lot of sense. Yeah. Like I remember when they're talking about that party in Montauk and he's like, This is where we met. Like I remember being confused and being like, Well, wait a minute. Like I was a little thrown off by that for sure. But but then in hindsight it's like, okay, like that's that's actually uh, that's like cluing you in, right? So it's obviously I mean, we've praised the script through, throughout this first portion of the recording so far. Obviously we're a big fan of the way it was written, just in, in storytelling and in dialogue, I would say as well. I think that um, that's very interesting. We haven't really talked at all about the company and the characters within the company. So if we want to touch on that for a little bit, we can. We have obviously, I'm going to forget names here. Is it Hank, the lead of it? Howard. Okay, I knew it was an H, yeah. Howard Stark. <laughs> No, I'm, just, I'm totally, I'm totally, I'm totally, I'm totally joking. <laughs> okay. No, the Stan, Stan, uh, Stan is Mark Ruffalo. Patrick is Elijah Wood. Uh, the, oh my gosh. What's the young lady? What's her character's name? Mary. Mary. Yeah. Mary Spivo. Yeah. Mary. I was going to say May, but yeah, Kirsten Dunst is, is Mary. But that's the, the company stuff. So when, what, what I appreciate about like after that opening sequence, right. Then we get this flash backward and we're like whoa okay so we're trying to we're trying to piece this together as the audience and and kind of going back to what Gardner said like one of my favorite things in films is they keep you engaged when they just they know the audience is smart like they go hey the audience will figure this out we don't need to just beat them over their head with exposition we don't need to like they don't even put the year like they don't do any of stuff like that they don't waste time on that they're just like we're going to just tell a story and and you're going to be along for the ride so um, you know, they, they go through that sequence where, and again, it's kind of that similar tempo. Like after he cries, it's kind of a similar tempo of him just trying to, like, he's talking to his friend, right? His friends, uh, David Cross and, and his wife, and he's like over there and he's telling them like, like what's going on. He's like, and I love like just the cuts, like he's talking about, he, he was getting a, like this gift and he's like, yeah, she like, she acted like she didn't know me. Right. And then they, they kind of show the Barnes and Noble stuff. And all that jazz, like like all that stuff, like once we get to that sequence, like we're we're kind of building up to the moment where he begins to forget. But like what I love about all that stuff is we don't get there just yet. Like we cut to him getting home, and he is his, the guy that like you know stops him in the lobby. He's like, "Hey, uh, where's Clementine?" Right? And so we're like, "Okay, all right." So they're together. Like where they've been together, we, we we've established there's a relationship going on. And if you look on the side of his head, he has that black dot. The Jim Carrey because he was in the office before when they were like scanning his brain, he still had the black dot on the side of his head. And he's like, yeah, I, I gotta, I gotta go to bed. And then we cut to like some outside shots that we don't know what's going on. Like, Oh yeah, there he goes. There he goes. Hold on. You know, like there's someone watching him. We're like, okay, who's watching him? What's, what's, what's all this about. Right. And then he's in the apartment and he lays down in bed. He takes his, like his pill to knock himself out. And they just do this really beautiful close up of him. And he's just like, what am I supposed to feel right now? All right. He's just like, what's going on? Background is completely out of focus. And then he goes, to, you know, he turns off the light and they're like, okay, it's go time. And then they get into the apartment and then they begin 
to work on him. And you're just like, okay, what's going on? And what I love is they're like, okay, it's showtime. And then they cut to the memories. Like they don't show them necessarily setting a bunch of stuff up. Like they don't waste time on that. They show the memories. And it, again, they, they go to this David Cross scene and then you're kind of like, okay, what the hell is going on? And one of my favorite parts in that sequence, just in terms of like editing and setting these breadcrumbs is like when David Cross finally tells him what's going on, he hands him that card. He's looking at the card and the name Clementine fades. It just goes as he's reading the card. And you don't know what that means as the audience member. You have no, like, I have no idea what's going on. And then he goes down to the office and then that's when he starts meeting the, the people there. But just that sequence is really cool because like the main story beat is that he is talking to his friend. He finds out that he got, you know, he got forgotten. But the lead up to that moment is super cool because it's just so out of sequence. We're like in the present, then we're in the very far past. And then we're even further in the past, but in his memories. What? Like, I love that jump. It's so freaking sick. Like, I think it's so well done. And I love the, I guess, device of Clementine's hair color as you being able to tell where you are in the timeline of the film, which you wouldn't know until you've watched it over and over again. But like, after my first viewing, I was like, oh, that's right. Like her hair was like different colors in these different scenes. It's just, you know, I, I can't speak like as specifically like to the editing, but it just is ethereal almost in a way. In that it, um, I, I like to talk about like movies as being like a dream state in that it, it transports you. Obviously they're supposed to transport you to another world, but there's just, there's just a specific quality that I can't quite put into words that the pacing of this film brings you in. And, you know, like you and I have both said, the questions and the, the unanswered questions being brought up over and over again the way it takes you throughout the journey that the characters are going through, because he has so many questions and he has so many things that he's confused about and trying to figure out. I don't know. It's just, it's just one, it's just one of those elements of this film out of many that just makes me, I've only seen it once, you know, but I want to watch it again already. Now that we're talking about it, I like want to throw it on, on my TV with no sound on. Yeah, the um, Michelle Gondry, the, the director, um, was really big on using practical effects. So the scene where David Cross and, and Joel, they're like having this discussion about like him being forgotten, but him saying like how he discovered that Clem didn't know him was like he goes to see her Barnes and Noble. And then, you know, you don't see Elijah Wood's head, you know, Patrick, you don't see his face, but he's like, hey, and she goes, hey, Patrick, baby boy. And she kisses him and he's like, you know, he got this gift for her. But then they do this single take where he's just walking down the aisle and the lights go doom, 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 doom. And they just start like turning off. And then he's in the, he's in the room with Dave Cross and his wife. And, and, and going back to what you're saying, like, this is kind of cueing in the audience or cluing them in is like, the rules don't apply in the same way here. There's almost like a dream-like physics don't, like nothing really makes sense in this world right now. And then they, they start to break with that later. Like there's some crazy stuff they do later, but that's the beginning of that. Like, okay, something's going on. Like the card was 
one moment and then the lights kind of doom, 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 doom. It was like, like, you know, how come sometimes like we see our lives as like a sitcom or we see our lives as a show when we're looking at it from externally and we're like thinking back on things like it was so much more dramatic than it actually was. But that's just like, I think a really cool way of just showing that visually. And it, it was a single take. It was just a very, and that's one of those moments where the, the editing kind of changes a little bit. It's a long process because he's dwelling on the pain. He's holding on to that pain when everything up to that moment was da, 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 and then he didn't know who I was, was so good. Like, so well done. I love that scene. Yeah. And I think that throughout the film, they have other, I didn't know that was practical. I didn't know what, I didn't know any of those like fun facts about the film other than I have, I have one that I'll drop in later, but I didn't know that. That is cool that he was about that. Cause I, I love when directors do that kind of stuff. And I think it, pays off because I was talking about earlier about how like everything is well done and I was like saying how they do things where they like can hide it and stuff maybe they weren't even hiding it and they were just doing things that were working like I know we talked about a, a cut with Jim Carrey where he goes behind the counter uh, behind the camera and messes his hair up and that's when he's talking to Howard or he's talking to himself and Howard's telling him I'm yourself and there's other cool scenes like when he looks at Elijah Wood there yeah. and his eyes are all messed up i think they might even be like upside down I don't that shit is so fucking freaky yeah it's sick oh i love it yeah i mean we'll, we'll get to that later because that's like that you know that's like but the way they did that was elijah wood actually sat in a swivel chair and so he swiveled it and then they just blended the shots so he's just swiveling in a swivel chair as he's like turning him around and then that's why you just see the back of his head like, <laughs> so cool wow very cool yeah really cool stuff i did want to mention we were talking about when David Cross's character is telling him about how she's lost his memory. And I think this is a kind of an interesting scene to talk about with what I was bringing up before, where I think that he was not the best boyfriend and not, he needed to learn things from it because he's getting mad at the impulsiveness here. And he's, he's turning to anger right away where he's like, why would you do this? Why would she get, why would you forget me? And he's very angry right away. And he even, you, you see that he then, he's doing it out of spite. He's not doing it because really he wants to forget her. He's doing it because she forgot him. It's like, well, if you don't remember me, I'm not going to remember you type of thing. So you see that he kind of jumps to that. And I think it's interesting because where we come to at the end and we've kind of, I know I'm jumping right to the end here, but we've talked about this a little bit. So I'm not going too out of the lane where that interpretation of the ending, where they're not necessarily going to have the perfect relationship, but they're going to at least be aware of what's going to like be the flaws in it. And hopefully he'll, be able to be more comfortable with her impulsiveness and hopefully her impulsiveness won't lead her down to forgetting him completely, but he has to be on understanding of that as well. You know what I mean? And, and he does, he says, fine. And that's, I mean, that's how I look at the ending is he's like, okay, that's going to happen. You're going to get bored of me. Okay. It's still worth it. And I think that's actually interesting, right? It's like, Hey, uh, did, did Eve Villeneuve have uh, any, was he taking some notes of this when he was writing Arrival by any chance where it's like, it's, it's still worth it to do it, even if it's going to end up in tragedy, which is kind of, that's how I read it when I was looking at it, where Joel knows that it's going to end up like that. And he's telling her, okay, let's do it anyway, even if we're going to end up in this cycle. Yeah, I, that scene, you know, he gets triggered by the word lark. She did it on a lark. And he's like, I, I was just a lark. Like I was just something fleeting. I wasn't something permanent. I was just a thing or like a moment. Like I was that to her. And then that's one of the moments in the film that really hits me the hardest because I've definitely been in situations where someone's hurt me and I just, all I want to do is hurt them back. 
and hurt them back even more than the way that they hurt me, like this eye for an eye thing. So I definitely like aligned with that. So like that moment really can sometimes trigger me. Sometimes I can like, get a little emotional and I'm like, I know what that feels like. I know what it feels like to be hurt and then go, I just, I just want to hurt them back. I'm, I'm way past that now. Like I feel like in my life, I'm just like, a lot of that stuff isn't even worth it. Maybe that person isn't even worth to have in your life. But when I was younger, I was quicker to anger and impulsive. And that was definitely like something that I could see myself in that character. When Joel, when, when Joel's like oh, on that table and then he, they cut right to the scene where he's running into that office in tears and he's telling Howard, we're going to, I want to do it tonight. I want, I, I like, I want to, I just want it done. Like he's not thinking of the, the ramifications. He just wants to just get it done ASAP. And Howard's like, okay, okay. Like you found out about this whole thing. So, I mean, we just, we owe it to you to try to, you know, take away any, any pain. And he wants to hurt her. Like you were saying, where it's like when an eye for an eye type of thing. And it's really interesting because who does he end up really hurting? It's himself. And you see that throughout the film and you see him struggling with that decision that he's already made. And he's like, no, like I, like he's trying to reverse it. He's trying to outsmart the machine. And, you know, we can talk about that later, about how hiding in different memories and stuff like that. But it is interesting where it's like, the film is almost telling you like, well, look what happens when you act like that. Who do you end up hurting? It's yourself. And it's not productive. And it, like, it's something where this film is clearly saying something like, like, I think sometimes you can watch a film and be like, okay, that was a film for just straight up enjoyment. That was made for me to just watch, eat some popcorn and enjoy. And this is clearly not one of those films, obviously. And I think it's one that I don't think there's any way to watch this and not come out with something or at least the knowledge that that something was presented to you and like the want to figure out what exactly it was. Cause I don't think that, I mean, again, this is, we've all watched it once, me, Tarn and Gardner and Alfonso, you've seen it far more times than once we've said, we can't, we don't even know. So, <laughs> but with that, what first viewing, I think that it's interesting. Like I almost want to come back to it in a couple of years after maybe a couple more watches and do another assessment of it then, you know what I mean? Where I think that it really does. I'm sure that, that you're, what you've gleaned from it has changed throughout the years. And I think you've, you've already said that, that like you've gone through different stages in your life where this film has said different things to you and it's meant different things to you. And I think that it's interesting because I don't think any of those things were probably wrong or not what they were saying. I think the film was probably always was saying all those things and it was just hitting, you know what I mean? Where it's hitting you in different places. And I think that that's, again, the beauty of Hoffman, in my opinion. I think that, you know, I've been blown away by, by a lot of his work, especially in this time period. I, I'm, I don't want to jump too far ahead by saying this, but I do feel like the film, like you were saying, calls into question the concept of wanting to remove a memory. It gets a little more heavy handed as we get into some of the people that work for the company's issues, right? How they handle it because they like, obviously, this is not just like this is a widespread used service. You know, we got a little old lady in there with stuff from her dead dog. You know, it's like people are using this willy nilly um, any way they can. But what you do see is and stop me if I'm jumping too far ahead, but the, but the way Mary, right. It's like the dichotomy between how Howard and Mary, they both have their situation together. Howard is not wiping his brain, nor is he wiping his wife's brain about the situation, but the more immature, the younger person, it's just like, boom. And then she falls and makes the same mistake. Right. And you know, you see it in the wife's face. It's like, you know, just tell the poor girl, like, this is not something like that's part of growing up. That's part of becoming like your person. And I think the whole film does kind of call into question that idea. And then even the 
the ethics of the company because nobody working there is really it's a shysty operation to say the least and i think the film really highlights that and it, it is kind of making it's making a point you know like your memories are important and i think it's important to note that you were just talking about mary and it's important to note that she we find out that what howard says is that she decided that she couldn't she she couldn't live with it but when we hear the recording it's very clear that she doesn't want to go through with it and he's the one that's making this happen and he's like we decided it was best and she's like yeah i know and you can hear it in her voice it's very obvious that she doesn't want to do it she says she doesn't want to do it she says i can't do this in the recording it's very it's very clear so i think it's an important note to make when we're when we're talking about that and that points that you bring up Tarn. yeah uh, and just one one final thing in that that sequence um, at the beginning when Joel goes to that office, I love the the line of like he's like, "Is there any chance of brain damage?" And he goes, "It is brain damage." <laughs> it's like it is, but he's it's, it's on par with the night of drinking. And I was like, you know, to to to, to Taran's point, like it's so well established and and widely used that at this point it's just like it's like it is whatever. Like it actually won't really affect you cognitively that much, but. People use it as like a band-aid. Yeah, I I, I copped the the you know the 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 box of <laughs> the, the dogs things. Buster, I think was his name or something like that. And then and then the uh, the man had like like a trophy, like a, like a football trophy. I'm like, what is that about? Like, did he lose somebody, or is it because a game was like he wanted to forget something that happened in the game? I, you know, I don't I don't know, but it was just interesting to see that. Uh, I thought that was a cool little cool little details that they showed. Taryn, you also mentioned the kind of side plot of how everyone there is doing sketchy things, right? And I do think it's interesting that that kind of Elijah Wood side plot is a little bit glossed over in my opinion, where it's like he's doing Jim Carrey's bit the entire time. Like he he's watched the memories and so he's using that to be with her because he knows that works on her. I feel like that's a little bit glossed over and it's kind of a, a, like a really interesting part of the movie in my opinion. Like I thought, there was going to be a little bit more maybe like come up and, and I obviously like he gets yelled at and I think that's a very like that acting in that scene I can see why she was nominated for the for her performance in this film because her emotional like whether it be sad or angry or both at the same time or whatever it is acting that kind of acting she nails it so I see why she was nominated for it, but he doesn't really get the come up and I feel like that I was maybe looking for like a more of a a, 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 a bow on that that story but not saying that as like a negative thing it's just something that was like kind of uh something i wanted to mention because i think it's it's just interesting how that's kind of brought up and like that i thought was going to turn into a bigger part of the story potentially i mean but they do utilize it that's kind of what triggers joel to wake up right is he hears them talking you know i i, I guess yeah you might want to see something come out of it but i think it's more of like a literary tool for them to get that trigger for him yeah because this is a, you know like Kind of bringing us back to like where we're at in the story so far and in you know joel is kind of forgetting he's eating chinese food and like there's like weird stuff going on like he starts like becoming orange and then he's like wait what and then he's like back in the office again and then he's like wait what and he's like what's going on and he's like kind of walking around and he's like wait i had we had this conversation with howard and then howard's taking his blood pressure again but yeah he's watching himself sitting in a seat and he's like, I don't know. And then they cut back to him. Like he's now in the chair, but he's behind Mary's desk. And like, there's all these things that are happening where Stan is like putting all these like things that are like stimuli for him to like focus on memories so they can build that map. And he's just like, 
what is going on? And then it cuts to now our first real understanding of what outside of the dream sequence looks like. It's we're in his home and it's Stan and Patrick working with the machine. Like you, you see that giant helmet on his head, you see them on a computer and then Patrick is like fiddling with these things. And he's like an idiot, right? He doesn't know what he's doing. And he's like, he's turning everything up to like 10 and then, you know, it, it causes him to kind of panic. And that's what I, what I, what I really liked about that moment, just in terms of from the, like how it affects the rest of the story is now the rest of the story becomes almost like a lucid dream where he like now is like, I'm aware of these memories. Like I'm aware of what's happening. So he sometimes adds extra lines to the scenes, like where, you know, she says something and he goes, and you're going to say this. I know this is the part you're going to say this. Like, I know this is, and by the way, I'm erasing you. Like he starts, he starts trying to talk to her and hurt her going back to like, like wanting to hurt them just as much as they've hurt you. Like he's like trying to talk to someone who like the memory has already existed. Like you can't really change it. So he's just like, just kind of being like spiteful, like just kind of bringing that out and kind of, but you can see that like, he's, he knows that now, like it now clicked in his head. Oh, this it's begun. It's begun. Like the, the racing has begun. Uh, so that's also like a kind of a cool, like, like switch in the storytelling where he's a little bit more self-aware. And I think things like using him talking and changing things and saying different things and saying, I'm erasing you and things like that really works. And the way it's presented really works. Again, I'm, I feel like I keep coming back to that Montauk scene where they first met, but when he's talking to her and they're eating or he's eating, right. And she's taking, she takes the chicken from him and like there's a moment because you don't even know because you haven't seen this scene before you don't know what he actually says the first time so when he delivers a line the like right when he first delivers it, you don't know if he's saying something that he said before or if he's changing it necessarily so when he says and you just took it he could have actually said that right like that's something you could say when so if someone if someone just if someone grabs your food you'd be like oh and you just took it like that that could be a response yes but then you, then the next line it makes it clear that he's talking to his memory He's not saying the thing he said. He's talking to her in the past, right? And I think it's really interesting that she's able to talk to him too and that she's able to kind of like devise plots with him and be with him and in on it with him. There's perception of her. Like he's talking to himself. Right, right. No, no. I think, I think it's beneficial. I think it's, it's really, it helps the storytelling. It's like you said, Taran, um, before we started recording, Infinity Chamber vibes. It's him plotting with his subconscious you know, to kind of figure out. And it's essentially like him processing his grief, right? Because he's going through his memories, but you're also deleting them. It would be much more, that that's what you should be doing is interacting with your experiences and growing off of them. You see that, and that's kind of what happens is like as he's forced to experience all these memories, he's going through the growth that should be happening organically and then realizing that, you know, the impact of these memories is what's allowing him to do that. And that's when he starts to want to pull the, the ripcord on it. So where do we want to jump to now? I know we've kind of been a little bit all over the place. I guess we've got a little bit into what's going on outside of his dream state. Alfonso, you mentioned that earlier. I don't know exactly when in his dreams the conflict i guess in the outside world happens with between the wife and then all the exposition of what happened to mary in the past i don't know exactly when in his dreams that happens 
that that happens well that happened yeah that happens in the real world and that's when the lucid dreaming becomes something where like he wants to hide right so in this point in the, the, the story where we're at you know we've established that uh joel is now self-aware he's doing a little bit of lucid dreaming and he's like you know actively like telling clem or, or kind of like in the scenes kind of poking fun at like ha 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 you know this is what's going on in the real world what's happening is um patrick is uh, kind of talking to his girlfriend and 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 that he says tangerine he hey tangerine and then that jumps to a memory for joel where he's remembering when she dyed her hair orange and he's like oh my tangerine and then you know she's like oh clementine clementine the tangerine or whatever and then you know he's he's like making fun of that and so that's when we start getting to those memories that he begins to cherish. And if you see the way that editing begins to change is that it starts to linger a little bit more. The shots take their time. And the scene that is the moment for Joel's character that this is what I, I don't want, I don't know if I want to do this anymore, is they just had sex and they're underneath the blanket. I love that shot. Like them underneath the blanket, it's so intimate. Can't tell you how many times like I've had conversations like under the blanket and just like, you just feel so safe. And so they're talking and she's talking, Clementine is talking about how she used to have this ugly girl doll and she called the ugly girl doll Clementine, Clementine, right? And, or Clem. And so she's like, you know, be beautiful, be, be beautiful. Like, and she felt like if the doll transformed, she would be healed. And in that moment, Joel is like, you are beautiful. You know, you, you're, you're amazing. And then it cuts to like, it, the memory is about to erase. And you can, what I love about like when the memory is about to erase, it becomes a spotlight. It's almost as if we've found you. The spotlight comes and everything gets black around it. And so this happens underneath the sheets, but Joel is like, no, can I keep this one? Please let me just keep this one. And that's when it's now we're getting into the memories that he actually loves. And he's just like, no, no. And then it cuts to them being out in the snow and they, they go, it's the, you know, them going outside and enjoying each other. And he's like, we got to get out of here. Like we, we, we have to, we have to get out of here. And then he starts like trying to pull her. And then we start looping into old memories. Like they go, that's when we start getting into the office and he goes back and he goes, Hey Howard, like, how do I stop this? And Howard is interviewing Joel on one side and then he turns and he's like but we can't really stop this what, what are you talking about joel like it's happening he's like yeah yeah but this doesn't feel good like like something like we gotta we gotta stop this and he's he's trying to figure out how to fix that and so that's really when that begins to happen is that that switch for him and i think as we're watching as the audience it kind of reminds us of like like and that, that's what i was mentioning before the, the intro was there are there are good things you know, like sometimes we hold on to pain. I think as humans, we, we hold on to things that hurt us way more than the things that have been good in our lives. It's really good. It's really easy to harp on the negative, but it's really good for our souls and our, our minds to really focus on the good, the things that have been good in our lives. And so like, this is that switch in him. And now it's a, it's a race to kind of figure out how to, how to stop that from happening. And I just love that. I love that sequence. I love that when he becomes super vulnerable and they're literally naked, like the, the, under the, the sheets, they're naked and they're bearing their souls to each other is, is a memory that he really enjoys. And, and that, that's the thing that reminds him of like, wait, this was worth it. 
I loved that sequence. I loved everything that had to do with Joel's memories and like bouncing around in them. And I know we mentioned earlier, Alfonso, that we kind of want to get into like some of like the, the tricks of how that got done and Jim Carrey messing up his hair and running around behind the camera and stuff like that. But it also, it, it feels real for people who have like, laid awake at night, you know, thinking about like, what could I have done differently? You know, when, when you don't have the option to erase those memories, you do live in them fairly frequently and explore them and think about like what you could change about them. And I don't know, there's, there's, um, this is when the movie for me really starts to like grab you and not let go. Like, I I feel like it does that from the beginning, but this portion where we are exploring his memories. And I think the visual aspect has a ton to do with that, with the way that the, the lights change and the way that the, the actual physical surroundings begin to deteriorate and collapse. Uh, it, It just feels authentic. It feels like you are actually traversing through someone's mind and I can't help but relate with Joel in this instance no matter what were to happen in that scene I feel like you know he's hurt and he's full of regret and he's trying to reverse the decisions that he's made in the past even though he can't you know you can only move forward which again, I think ties back into the theme of the film in that the spotless mind is really a useless mind. You see the sunshine every single day. You see the sunrise every single day and it's brand new every single time and you never take away any lessons. And I feel like this is where in the film he finally embraces those memories and begins to learn the lessons of their relationship though he didn't do it, you know, up until that point. Yeah, I think, you know, kind of going back to what you said about the eternal sunshine on the spot, smiling, just even the title, it's like, is ignorance really bliss? Right? Is this idea that you being in this bubble, is that good for you as a person if you want to grow? Or is that good for you as a person who wants to experience things? Right? Like, are you really going to just kind of shy away from the things that might hurt you? And so, like, I, I really love the sequence. You know, I, I know, Duncan, you mentioned before that the Patrick character, we don't really get, it like, a payoff. And, and you know, it's not really his story. Like, you know, he is a side character. and, and I, But I do feel like he was developed. But what I think his device, aside from him being the trigger, like, from a literary standpoint, like, for, for Joel, he's running parallel to Joel's story. Because this is one that happens. In this story, Joel decides, I want to hold on to these memories. But then Patrick is like, I want to make new memories with this girl, but he's using her past. So it's kind of teaching you that lesson that you shouldn't try to replace someone. You shouldn't try to be anybody but yourself. You should try to make new memories if you're going to be in somebody's life instead of trying to relive old memories. Like, so if someone has like their favorite bar with their ex, don't go to that same bar and try to do the same exact things. Like, don't do that. Like, do something new, right? Be, be yourself. But Patrick was like, he's kind of, you can tell he's not super sure about himself. He's not super confident. Like he has to get her panties. Like he mentions that line and super proud of it. Like I got, I got her panties, man. Like, you know, like that thing when we were, cause they, they make that connection that they had gone to Clem's place and they wiped her mind there. That was the team that wiped her mind. And then Patrick is like, that's when I fell in love with her. 
And then, so that's when this happens in that story where those two lines just on the, like the railroad track line up and now they're running parallel, but in two different directions. Like it's kind of interesting how that is kind of playing with us as the audience as well, I think is really interesting. And this is even before Mary even shows up to the, to the party. Cause then this is around that time that it happens too, because she shows up and um, then you start getting the hints about the Howard stuff, like how she's kind of obsessed with Howard and, and kind of attracted to him and stuff too. So, but all of that is like beginning to like shift and we're like kind of in the, the, not necessarily the turning point in the story, but we're definitely reaching the climax. We're definitely like, we're definitely on our way. Well, I'm curious, Alfonso, what would you consider to be the climax? Cause I feel like different people could say different things about like, what is the climax of this story? So I'm curious about what your opinion is there. Uh, the, the climax, I think for me, is, is where, really where everything comes to a head. It's where Howard comes over and he lines him back up and now it's an impending doom. Like it's like you fought as hard as you could to keep these memories, but now you like there's that moment where he, they go back to the Montauk when they first met and they go to the house. The house to me is Joel's climax. That, that entire sequence is Joel's climax. When in the outside world, it's, you know, Howard and Mary coming together because that's the thing that triggers her decision on what she ends up doing later. So it's like, it's kind of like two, two, but they're all at the same moment because those things happen at the same time because Howard ends up leaving because once he gets him back in, in that zone again, back in like on the right track on the map is when he, he's like, I can't run from this anymore. And I just think all that stuff, that whole sequence is so brilliant. Like when he decides that he wants to hold on to the memories and then now it becomes a thing of like them wanting to hide. Now it's like, okay, so where do we go? And this is where you see a lot of those, those tricks happen, right? Like a little before that you see it too, like um, when, cause he, he wants to hold on to the memories. Like even though they've had a fight, there's the, the scene where, you know, they're, they're suffocating each other and all that stuff. Like, but then right before that, you can tell like, there's like, he kind of, he's kind of at a loss. Like he doesn't know, like, even though they're having an argument in the apartment, cause she comes home and he offends her. Cause you know, he, like, he says something stupid, like, Oh, I feel like you, you did sleep with someone tonight and she's walking away from him. He's like, he actually wants to keep following her. He, he wants to continue that confrontation because part of him actually just wants to be near her. And, but in that sequence, that's actually all practical effects. Kate Winslet is going through trap do- doors in that apartment. So she, when he follows her into the bathroom, she goes through a trap door and now she's in the kitchen. And so they, that's, that's an entirely one take of them walking through that whole place, which is super neat. And then, so when they cut to like later, when he does decide like, Hey, I want to keep these memories and they go into his childhood. The thing that, you know, he, the first memory is that row, row, row your boat sequence where it's raining and they, you know, he's outside and, you know, he's out in the rain and then they cut to them being in the kitchen that entire sequence is a forced perspective thing where they actually built that set. So the front of the table is really tall and then it just, the room shrinks. So when Jim Carrey or, or the other way around, so the, the room in the back looks really big. So when Jim Carrey goes to the fridge, there's no camera trick. It's a fridge that's really huge, but Kate Winslet is always closer to the camera to make it seem like she's this adult. And so I, I, I love the way like Jim Carrey does such a good job of like playing a little kid. Like he's like, but I want ice cream. And he's like kind of twisting his hair. Uh, and the cookie is as big as his hand. <laughs> like, that whole sequence is so good. Cause he's like, 
now he's like he's reliving this memory but now he has the mindset of that of the child but he still kind of knows where he's at he's still kind of self-aware he's like, i don't know where else to go and then that's when like the howard stuff you know th there's like now three storylines that we're following we see patrick run off to clementine because she feels something happening and i've always been curious about like that moment like she feels like she's getting erased like she's like i saw, i don't i feel like i'm jumping out of my skin like i need to go somewhere let's go to montauk let's go to boston and he's like okay sure let's let's go to montauk and so they decide to go there howard gets this wake-up call and he starts heading over to the place and then they're fully hidden as of right now and that's where we kind of see where this is at so i'm actually curious to see like when you got to this place in the story like what your thoughts were when we were seeing these three storylines and and like at this moment so for me i was a little bit surprised by the mary and howard stuff to be honest i didn't see that coming at all not like in a in a bad way just i probably wouldn't have guessed i mean i it was clear obviously like you said that she was into him i could tell that she was going in for that kiss for example and then like obviously the reveal of that her memory had been wiped and that it had happened before and the wife is aware of it and all, and everything and like Mark Ruffalo's character being kind of like aware of it to the point where he's like honking the horn and but he's like also in love with her so it's it's it's, it's an interesting dynamic there but I was just I was a little bit like again um I think Gardner you mentioned at the beginning where it's like he takes his stories in places that you just a, a normal movie wouldn't go I feel like that's how I felt right here where I was like oh okay so this is uh this is where we're going here for that that portion of it and not in a bad way again just like uh, okay like this is like different than a normal movie and like i always love to talk about how and dave actually one of our recent guests mentioned this as well like it's it's great when a movie does something and you're like oh like a story can be told that way or oh this this can happen in a movie and i'm not i'm not really fully prepared for it that's always a great feeling i think so stuff like that and just this movie has that in spades i think especially when it comes to like the visual effects and these tricks that you're talking about, it's crazy. And watching it the first time and not even knowing any of those behind the scenes stuff, you can tell that there's some sort of magic in the way it's shot. And it's got this feeling to it that it just works, you know? Yeah, I just love Mary's character so much. We talked about her relationship with Howard and there's just such an, an, an earnestness and that aspect of still thinking that you like, you know what you want, even though you've like gotten it and now your memory has been erased. Like that's still like earnest pursuit of that thing. And she gets involved with Mark Ruffalo's character, but she's, she's still very much into Howard and they've alluded to that early on. She just is, I, I feel like we haven't talked about her enough the mary character she's like that link in the story that kind of like brings it all together like this movie doesn't exist without her i think you could probably have this movie without patrick like you said alfonso like he does have like a a, a complete arc uh throughout the story but i don't necessarily know that you like really need him i think you could still show a lot of joel's anguish and emotional turmoil without this you know third wheel uh intruding on what's going on I, you know obviously i still think he serves like a narrative purpose i just think just the 
core story wouldn't be changed that much were he to be removed from the equation. I think he's he's more there for Clem, though, for her journey in the present, because otherwise she's we don't really need to cut to her. Like we don't really need to follow her too much. Like she kind of needs conflict in the present, too, because otherwise it would just be a story about Joel. It's a good point. And not how not how they they find each other. So I think, you know, having that her being conflicted um, is important to see. And so I think I think he has that that purpose as well. I also think he presents like the ultimate tragedy of the movie when he gives uh, Clem the gift from Joel. And she's like, oh, like, because I I know my mom has said this, like, nobody ever gets me jewelry that I like because it's, you know, such. And she says that and it's like Joel nailed it. And like, that's the thing that he was like taking at the beginning. Right. And he's just rejected. And like, that's one of the biggest romantic tragedies for me is like, you know, the ultimate gift is just wasted, essentially. But we see, like you were saying about the the different narratives also, like it's not just a love triangle. It's like this weird interconnecting thing with the tertiary stories on the side that I think is um, an interesting tell from this movie. And Gardner, you were talking about Mary, and I think it's interesting to look at her and you did say like where like she got what she wanted. I don't know. I don't know if she got what she wanted because I don't think that she actually wanted it is, is kind of my point of view on that. Right. Yeah. She, she's interesting in that. Like I, I didn't expect her to be the catalyst. Right. And she totally is. I did want to mention with her though, that I think that she brings in this broader narrative thing too, as well, where she has her memory erased and what does she do? She goes right back to wanting Howard and she fall and, and she literally does the exact same thing she wanted. She did last time. And it was like, I, I've loved you since I, I first met. So seeing you, I think she says that in the recording and to him in, in when we see her. So that's interesting because it's, the falling back into what you always do, which is what they're saying at the end, is what Clementine says to him. She says, I'm always gonna do this. I'm gonna get bored of you. You're gonna you're gonna do that. And it's like, I think it's a little bit interesting because like the movie isn't kind of pushing back on that at all, on that idea of falling back into your ways. Whereas I think there's been a lot of movies that are specifically about not going back into your ways and the, and the arc of the character is by the end of the movie they're, they're finally not doing what the same thing they always did but this movie they never really resolve that and not again i i keep, I keep saying not in a bad way but i'm not i'm not saying this as a complaint i'm saying this as this is just it's an interesting thing to talk about in the overall narrative structure of it because that it is how they end the movie that i'm saying that and it is something that's been brought up through the movie with the character mary and i think it's interesting I think it's one of those movies where you kind of you take from it what you bring to it, where if if you bring to it this like very optimistic point of view where, you know, maybe they do like if you if you have the belief that like some people are destined for like a happy ever after or uh, they can work through their issues, uh, you know, regardless of how disparate their personalities really are, then you're going to take away from that that it's like a happy ending that like he says okay like his line reading of the way he says okay when she says that line that you just mentioned duncan you could say that you could see that as being like oh well then you know they've kind of like learned and they're gonna like be okay with each other's flaws now that they've listened to the tapes or you could have like a more cynical point of view which is kind of what i have which is like with that spotless mind you don't learn those lessons and you're doomed to repeat the same mistakes over and over again. And there's still going to be mistakes and they're still going to hurt and they're still going to drive you apart. 
So I think it's one of those stories where depending on where you are in your life, age-wise, relationship-wise, whatever, you are going to draw something different from that ending. And I think I have a similar reading in the fact that I think that it's not that they're going to fix them. I think that they're just accepting the fact that that this is how it's going to go. And that's, I think I, I brought it up earlier where I was like, they're saying, okay, it's still worth it. What we're, the, the good that we're going to get out of it is still worth it. And I think that's almost, and maybe the way I read that is, the reason I read it that way maybe is because it ties back in with the idea of the memories. It's like, even the bad memories, you can gain something from it. So even if the, and now, now these memories are going to be in the future, the memories that we're going to make in the future are going to be worth it. And I, won't, I wouldn't want to erase those potential future memories by not being with you just because I know, and again, this is where I brought up Arrival, just because I know it's potentially going to end up in us falling back into our old ways and you becoming bored of me or me becoming sick of your impulsive ways. I thought, you know, like that, that ending, uh, watching it so many times has changed a lot for me, but the way, the way I read it is more that they want to give it another shot and them at that point where things were getting bad that they just decided to give up on it is let's try this again. And if we get to that point, let's try to work to work past that. Right. It's this idea that, yeah, we're going to get there. We're probably definitely, you know, we're most definitely going to get there. But when we do get there, instead of running away, you know, because the line that triggers him to chase her, if you listen to the tape is how, how come you can be with someone for so long, but they're still a stranger. It's this thing that he's like, wait, but I never really knew her. And this is like the perfect moment because he actually genuinely doesn't know her. Let me actually get to know her this time. And let's see if those flaws and those things that drove me crazy are things that actually do, or if I can find the good in those things too, like the things that used to annoy me because I didn't understand her. I didn't know who she was. He, he made an assumption about her. Like he made this, he made, you know, and the thing that hurts her is in two times in the movie at the beginning. And then at the end is when he says that she sleeps with people for them to like her. He says that when they have that like big breakup, like conversation, because he's like, he says that to her and then she's like, she runs off. And then in the recording, he says that and she hears that. She goes, I'm not like that. That really hurts me that you said that. And that's the thing that gets her to leave again. It's the same. And so it's, it's just a reflection of that same scene, but now they're strangers. But again, they were strangers then too. So I think it's this moment of if we really like, show ourselves to each other the best moments again in the memories the best moments were when they were vulnerable with each other maybe we should do that more focus on that more and then maybe we can make this work so i don't think it was like we're gonna have a happy ending but it's like we need to work at it because love is work you know being with my girl for 10 years like i can say that i know i've driven her crazy but she's challenged me and she's helped me grow and that's the reason why i know she's the one is not because it's easy and not because it's like all fluffy, it's because she makes me better. And, you know, I feel like I, I've helped her as well. So it's, and, and that, that takes work. So that, that's to me, the ending kind of builds up to that moment because, you know, as, as, as we get to like the point where we see those three storylines, then everything starts to, you know, go towards the resolution, which is he's in the house and it's crumbling. 
and she he can leave, but he goes back in and she goes, just say goodbye. You know, like let's let's be here together. Right. Because he's like, there's no memory after this. She's like, it's okay. You know, like let's let's kind of be here with each other because let's let's do the thing that we were afraid to do and just be. So when he goes back in and he's standing with her and it's crumbling and the water is hitting their feet, that's when she whispers, like, you know, find me in Montauk. And that's the thing he holds on to. It's something that she never said, but it's something that he knows that he needed to hear, like, I want to find her again. Yeah, it definitely feels like the movie is positing that these uh, traumas and hurts that we deal to one another in relationships, maybe we can't completely move past them and and forgive them. But what we can do is own up to them, acknowledge them, discuss them directly and freely and honestly and address them. And then the more honest you are, the freer and happier you can be going forward. You can't change what has happened, but by acknowledging it for what it is, acknowledging your own feelings for what they are, moving forward, you can approach that in a more healthy way. And that's what they do at the end of the movie, I guess. So, Or at least they try. Right. Yeah. If, if you're an optimist, like, Tarn, I, I still have a cynical reading of it. I'm sorry. <laughs> so do we have any other points, any big things that we need to discuss? In terms of the story, I think we kind of, you know, hit all the points, you know, like they're the, the you know, after that, the moment where all the, the, the things align and we, we are now on this track towards the end and they, you know, now we see that moment where we see the sequence from the opening. It goes a little bit faster because we now know what happens but we kind of, you know, we pieced it all together and we see Mary kind of, she goes to the office, gets all those cassette tapes and like, is like, I'm going to deliver these to these people because in her mind, it's like ethical for people to know like the things that they've forgotten. Like, it's just, it is important to know that. And then they meet up and it's almost like, you know, one would argue like, oh, is this movie about destiny? Is this movie about like, you know, you're gonna, you're destined to be with whoever you're supposed to be with. But, you know, I, Gardner's take on like, you know, it, like it being a little more cynical, you know, obviously I think is, is, is a take on it that you can have because I think it's in some ways, if you pull this back and you blow it up a little bit more, it's like an allegory on life and like the way society is like, you know, we forget, or even just history, like human history, like we want to forget sometimes the bad things or we want to just move on and make sure everything is like fuzzy, like, oh, you know, like racism doesn't exist or all these things don't exist. We can just move on and you actually sometimes have to stare it in the face and go like, yeah, that sucks for us to move forward as humans. So like, I think taking that ending as like the okay is not resignation, but an acceptance like, Hey, yes, it is this, but we're going to try. We're not going to give up. I think is, is kind of like that moral like they're in that hallway. And I just love that they kind of lean towards each other. They start laughing like, yeah, it, it is going to suck but it's going to suck together. We're going to do this together. And then we get that loop at the end, which I fucking love that loop just happening over and over again, where they're just running through the snow. Right. And then that can go back to Gardner's take. We're like, yeah, they're, you know, they're just, it's going to be over and over again. Like, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, it could be that, you know, who, who knows, like it, it could be, or that's like just multiple, it, it could be, you know, like the multiverse, like they're all leading to that one moment and it's just happening multiple times. Who knows? 
you know, um, at the end of the day. But what I, what I appreciate about, again, the editing process is them like, again, in the hallway, all that stuff, the shots really linger. There's no longer fast cuts anymore. The shots have now decided to linger because they want to live in the moment. They don't want to just blow through life and just kind of miss all these details. Like they want to just be. And, and I appreciate like, we've gotten to that point in the story happens in the memories when we start seeing like the under the cover scene, like the shots begin to really change. And, and we've now been to a point where like that looping part is like almost therapeutic. It's like, you're just seeing them just running into the snow, man, this looks so good. <laughs> it really is. And I, I love the point that you brought up about not resignation, but acceptance. I think that is such an important distinction to make. And I just love how, um, literary this one is in that you can interpret it different ways and like I said earlier like what you bring to it is kind of what you get out of it not completely but to an extent where if you are you know uh, myself having gotten out of a relationship just a few months ago and maybe feeling a little more cynical about that kind of thing I have a little more cynical reading of it whereas if you are uh, a little more stable or a little more uh, optimistic in general about life then you have a little more optimistic reading of it I think it's it's that's what makes this one of those movies that I want to rewatch immediately because you can pull so many different messages from it and it's just an eminently like fascinating piece of cinema so it sounds like that may be the end of our episode on Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Before we officially end, I do actually want to read that Alexander Pope quote. Oh, absolutely. Just kind of leave it, leave it with the audience. Please do. I just, I love, I love it. And I love that they, they use it as a, as a part where they cut back to, to Joel and, and Clem's story. How happy is the blameless Vestal's lot? The world forgetting, but by the world forgot. Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind each prayer accepted, and each wish resigned. Beautiful. So that does end the discussion of Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, as we've discussed everything we wanted to. But now it is time for final thoughts and ratings. Alfonso, as our guest, you do get to start us off. What is your rating of this movie? I give it 100 dirty minds out of 100 dirty minds, because the mind should not be spotless. In my mind, it's it's a perfect film, although obviously, you know, you can find flaws in it, but it's just for me and how much it's meant to me in my journey in my life. And every time I watch it, I, I find something new and a way to adapt it to me. It's, it's a film that will stay with me for the rest of my life. Like I will always come back to this movie. Yeah. So that's that's my reading. And, and that's that's my my take on it. I know you, you know, if you if you stayed till the end, you already know that I love this film. <laughs> like, so, you know, I just, I, I don't think I could gush about it anymore, but I'm glad, I'm glad all of you saw it, that, that, that I, I feel like, you know, we need to share movies like this. This, this movie is, is one of those movies you, you definitely need to share and watch it multiple times to get more out of it. Absolutely. I'm glad. I love when a guest brings a hundred out of a hundred movie to, to the podcast. I, it's always, it's always great to, to find out that you put your money where your mouth is and you're willing to give it the perfect score. Hell yeah. I mean, that's perfect. Yes. Gardner, you are up next. All right. Yeah. Uh, I want to give this film 
97 out of 100 Long Island Railroad train cars. Uh, it's just, uh, like you said, Alfonso, it's one of those movies that I can just see myself returning to over and over again throughout my life. The performances were incredible. The direction was astounding. Uh, I mean, we talked about the editing and, and just the way they shot certain scenes. It, it just absolutely blows my mind. The screenplay, I'm sure, is impeccable. I don't think it's it's completely perfect. I, I, I really have a hard time giving anything a 100 out of 100 because I really don't think anything is perfect. I know I'm that annoying teacher you had that you hated, but that's just my perspective. But 97, I mean, that's, I fucks with it. <laughs> Heavy. Uh, yeah, I would rec- recommend this to anybody and everybody. Nice. That's definitely on par with a hundred, if not in, if not, <laughs> if not exactly a hundred in the same league, in the same league, almost perfect. We're rounding up here. Yeah, 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 yeah. A technicality. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. That's a, that's definitely that's an A plus. Tarin, you're up next. I'm assuming you're giving it a ninety nine. No, we might be dipping a little lower. I could see myself giving this extra points on the rewatches um, as we are able to pick apart a little more. I'll be settling with a 91 train doodles out of a hundred. All right. So I actually got talked a little bit up during the process of this discussion. I had a feeling that I was giving an, an 88 at the beginning and I, that's a good score. Just by the way, that's not a, that's not a, a hating. That's not a hate hate by, by any, any means. <laughs> But it is something that, as you guys brought certain things up, it I was like, okay, that's, that makes it even better. And the practical effects, I think, and learning about that behind the scenes that gave it a higher score for me, for sure. I love that kind of shit. I love the way it looked on screen. I loved all that kind of like, you know, like the fades to black that you mentioned, Alfonso, and stuff like that. Those tricks that they did, I just, I love that kind of stuff. That's filmmaking right it's 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 magic it's, it's it's literal magic you're seeing on screen dude it's it's crazy so with that being said it got bumped up to a 93 tiny rocks out of 100 for me because that's all sand is <laughs> that's right very true i'm surprised no one no one picked potatoes those little potato people are hilarious <laughs> little potato elvis and like they're just like they're hilarious like when he puts when mark ruffalo's character puts them on thing i'm just like because they're all sets like he has to keep putting more of them on there <laughs> yeah numerous yeah or when, when he's talking to patrick and he's like oh what I, I forget the exact line but he says something along the lines of like oh the potato girl yeah yeah i'm i'm, I'm, I'm thrilled you, you all liked it it's it's so good like it's something i didn't i didn't talk about too much in, in like the film but like i mentioned it very briefly they did a lot of close-ups but as the film goes on it's just more medium and wide shots like when they're sitting on the steps when she takes the the chicken wing there's like a a really beautiful wide shot because it's like at the beginning of any any relationship it's endless possibilities right so it's really nice i like i like bring me on again If, if you guys watch it like let's say a year from now or two years from now like you guys watch it again I don't mind coming out here and going like, all right, I watched it again and I got this up. Hell yes. I need to experience some real pain. Yeah, you, you need to get a better reference point. Yeah, got to go through some suffering before you can really uh, understand this movie fully. Yeah, someone come rip my heart out. So yeah, that's great. I mean, you've already committed now to, to, to being down for a, for being a returning guest. That's, that's something that we usually have to try to 
coax out of someone at the end, like, hey, we'd love to have you back on. Yeah, you know, you've kind of dug your own grave there, so. Yeah, careful committing to us. Exactly. Yeah, I'm down. Awesome, awesome. We'll hold you to it. I did want to say, this is a random note, but I, you know, everyone else was bringing these IMDb fun facts or this just wealth of knowledge that Alfonso has as well. So I had to bring a little bit of uh, a fun fact that I have, which is Seth Rogen auditioned for the role of Patrick and did not get it. That is my fun fact. Uh, yeah, I don't think he would have been a good Patrick. I think Elijah Wood is that is that kind of like... Yeah, they casted that perfectly. Yeah. Because you kind of hate him. Like, you kind of you need... Like, Seth Rogen is like this bear. Like, you just love the guy. Like, yeah, I... I you know, you want... Like, Elijah Wood is like kind of like a little rat. Like, he's like... Ee. Like his laugh, like, ah, like, like just everything about him. So, uh, if you frame anybody as a panty raider, I feel like my <laughs> opinion of them is going down the drain very quickly. For sure. And I, I know that he's like already like a fairly short person, but like the fact that they frame him as like smaller than everybody else in every single shot just makes him feel like so much more of a weasel, which definitely contributes to your feeling towards. Patrick as a character. I did think it was interesting though because Seth Rogen would later work with Michelle Gondry on The Green Hornet. Oh yeah. 2011. What? Yeah. Michelle Gondry directed The Green Hornet? That is correct. Wow. Mind blown. What the fuck? <laughs> that doesn't make any sense to me at all. But And I'll be wondering, folks. No, I believe you. It's just like hard to believe that like those two movies are from the same director. I don't want to sound like I'm trashing anyone's work, but it did, did seem like there was something that stuck out out of his filmography, and it was Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, potentially. Uh, I don't know if he's worked on things that have gotten as much critical acclaim other than that. Well, I've seen one of his movies that's entirely in French, and I wish I could remember the name of it, but I cannot. I think it has, like, middling reviews, but what i remember of it is that it's it's um it's very whimsical and there's a character whose wife has cancer and there's a great sequence where they're in her bunk and and the walls are kind of breathing like her lungs and you can see them diminishing fuck i can't remember what it's called but that was my first introduction to him and i was like wow this man is like such an artiste and now i've seen this and it's like what green hornet so maybe i'm wrong maybe maybe I, the ones that they, that were they were like louding as his top films like the ones you would know i was like okay but maybe maybe i just didn't know some of them the green hornet being one of the ones listed was was kind of the, the big eye opener where i was like okay well it's like if that's one of the ones that we're mentioning what are the ones we're not mentioning mood indigo is the movie i'm thinking of that's the english title i don't know the french title but the english title is mood indigo and i quite i quite liked it i haven't seen it in, in a few years but it has a lot of those kind of whimsical quirky qualities that this movie has so would you say that we talked about Kaufman having his fingerprints all over it and I think that Gondry was part of the writing process as well so would you say that individual style that I mean the breathing of the wall sounds like it's kind of got parallels to some of the tricks that were used here a little bit yeah I would say mood indigo is a little more overt in how expressive the environment is for reflecting things that the characters are going through. And that's saying a lot because the eternal sunshine of the spot line is, is very overt with the house literally crumbling around them. 
but again, I haven't seen it in several years. So that's just my recollection. Sweet. So there's a, a film to check out if you're the audience. That's a Gardner recommendation special right there. I got two for you real quick for Michelle Gondry if you're, if you're down. Oh, absolutely. The Science of Sleep, which, uh, you know, if you ever get to it and you want to discuss it, that'd be, that'd be fun. That's with um, Gar- um, Gael Garcia Bernal, uh, Bernal, I forgot, I'm butchering his name right now. Um, but yeah, Science of, The Science of Sleep is really good. He also did a Be Kind Rewind, uh, which is a fantastic film, which is with Most Deaf and Jack Black. I love that movie. Man, that movie's so good. <laughs> that so good. I mean, based on that cast, I have to watch it. You know, the bait, like, it's a movie about making these movies with, like, no budget. Oh, my gosh. Like, that's, that's crazy. Sigourney Weaver's in it, too, right? Isn't she the bad guy? I think so. It's been a while since I've seen that movie, too. I, I like, I would, I would totally watch it and discuss it with y'all, too, like, the, both of those movies. Ooh, digging the grave even deeper. Yeah. I'm just saying, man. All right, Alfonso, we got you on the hook for two episodes now. You better be ready. Yeah, that sounds awesome. Yeah. That's actually a perfect segue with those recommendations into our final question, actually, which we have to ask you, Alfonso, which is, oh, do you have any independent filmmakers or any filmmakers that maybe we haven't heard of that we should check out, our audience should check out, and that you think maybe aren't appreciated enough? Sure. Um, so... Uh, the one I, w- I want to highlight because the, the the film that really kind of blew me away was his his last one called Pig. Um, his the the director's name is Michael Sarnowski. Uh, he's he's a director like he hasn't been around for too much. He has he's actually because I think Pig was so big. Um, he's actually been signed on to do a Quiet Place Part Three. But um, if you haven't seen Pig or heard of Pig. Go watch the trailer when you get a chance. Nick Cage is in it. And it's about this chef who lives in the forest who has a truffle pig that gets kidnapped. And you follow this man's journey back into civilization to find his pig. And that's all he's obsessed with. And damn it, if Nicolas Cage doesn't give one of the best performances he's ever done. Like, if you love adaptation, you love like some of his like really amazing work. Because I think, you know, he gets... He gets blown off as like a, like a, just a, a bad actor who just wants a paycheck. And yeah, he did a lot of bad stuff because he was bank, you know, bankrupt and he needed the money. But when he really finds a script and, and a director that really pulls it out of him, he can make magic happen. And Pig is, is a fantastic watch. And you want to talk about a movie that like you get to the end of it and you just have a lot of questions and like, what's going to, you know, like, it, it, it may, what does it say about society? Like that movie is a great watch and a, and a great discussion. So I strongly, strongly recommend Michael Sarnowski and then uh, to watch his movie Pig. He's fantastic. I don't know if you've watched Community, but if our audience has watched Community, it's a sh- TV show that Dan Harmon did with um, a bunch of people in it. Uh, but Donald Glover, Joel McHale, <laughs> Allison Brie, uh, Chevy Chase, Ken Jong. I could go on, but I won't. It's got everyone. It's got everyone. It's a great show. They do an episode where it's he's in a class where the it's a film class and the question is is Nicolas Cage good or bad and it's like he's Schrodinger's actor basically where it's like you have to figure out if he's good or bad and like I think that he drives himself crazy trying to figure like watching a bunch of Nick Cage movies and like he's trying to figure out like is he good or bad and I think that that's a, a BS question to be honest as much as I love the show 
I think it's an easy answer. He's good, right? I I totally agree with you, Alfonso. Like he's a he's a he deserves to be to be praised, and like I think that he's got enough good performances under his belt to be able to get away with some of those bankruptcy performances. Yeah, like uh, he's 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 fantastic. Like he's so good in that movie, you'll forget that he's Nicolas Cage. Just go watch it. So good. So good. Yeah. So damn good. Totally agree. Another uh, kind of small director I would recommend is, um, I don't even know how to say her first name, but I'm going to say it's Cyan, S-I-A-N, uh, Header. Uh, she's, you know, she's done a lot of like small stuff. She did like a few episodes here for like Orange is the New Black and uh, she did Little America, but um, she did a film called Coda. It's on Apple TV Plus that is absolutely fantastic. It's a film about a deaf family and their daughter, who isn't deaf, um, is trying to figure out her place in the world because, you know, she's known amongst her community as like, you're the kid with the deaf family, but she not only can speak sign, she can, you know, speak normally and because she can hear and she's so crucial to that family. So it's like about like, she's so ingrained in that family, like the family almost holds her back because of what she wants to go for. Like, I don't want to ruin it, like the stuff in the movie that's like really powerful, but, but you know, she feels like she's like betraying them and they, they make her feel that way too. But she's so frustrated because she just doesn't want to be like small time. She wants, she has like huge aspirations and that film is like so well done. And one of the big things about the film that was great was like, like they, they do not shy away from like using sign uh, language like all the time as often as they can and they, they blend it so well like when she's in the scene and she has to translate it's so good her acting like the, the main actors like her acting is incredible and um the the story is like heart-wrenching like oh my god there's a scene uh, I don't want to ruin it like if you haven't seen it like there's a scene in the film with the father it just tore me up out of pause it because I was like oh my god I'm like I'm a mess right now um, but they also on the set they actually had uh, hard of hearing crew members, which was also really cool too, which I thought was neat. But the film is fantastic. It's called Coda, and it's by Cyan Header. Awesome, and we have no excuse not to watch it because we can sit at home and watch it too. So easy access for everyone. I think that'll be great. Add that to your list, everyone. I am definitely going to be watching it soon. That does wrap up our episode on Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. We hope you enjoyed it. Shout out to any new listeners. We hope. We got you interested for future episodes. Thank you, Alfonso, for joining us today. We had a blast. And uh, I think we all really enjoyed this film, obviously, based on our scores. So good pick. Yeah, appreciate the quality movie recommendation. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much for picking such a good movie and for coming on to talk with us about it. I had a blast. I don't want to speak too much for my co-host, but I'm going to say that they had a blast as well absolutely absolutely and you bring so much to the table about the movie it's always eye-opening when uh we get a student of a movie you know essentially to come in and point out all the the things i missed totally yeah when you watch it again you're gonna be like oh snap like you're gonna have a lot of those moments and i like i can't wait so awesome thank you all so much for having me on here i i really genuinely appreciate it you know i think film just like any art is better when people discuss it because you know everyone has their own interpretation and and kind of we learn from each other like there's stuff like i heard tonight i was like yeah man like i love i love hearing all your perspectives like it's so cool so thank you so much for having me on 
seriously anytime and we are going to take you up on those offers so please be on the lookout yeah keep your eyes peeled to our audience be sure to check out status effect alfonso's podcast and be sure to keep up with our show as well we drop a full episode every friday usually with a guest this week we did eternal sunshine of the spotless mind next week we'll have another full episode but we can't tell you what that's going to be on yet In addition to our full episodes, we also drop a bonus episode every Wednesday. This Wednesday, we did an episode recapping our favorite TV shows of 2021. So check that out if you missed it. Next week's bonus episode will be a recap of Peacemaker Season 1. So be sure to get up to date on that before then. Stay tuned for all of those episodes. And in the meantime, follow us on Twitter, at GoodDataPod, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or anywhere you listen to podcasts. We can be found by searching the letters G, D, T, on any platform. And please, don't forget to leave a nice five-star review as well. This week, we have a five-star review from TG Blasty, who says, This show. Love it. Thank you, TG Blasty. And like I said, don't forget to check out Alfonso's podcast, Status Effect, which can be found anywhere you listen to podcasts. Check them out. I know I'm a listener, so I vouch. That's all for this episode. We'll talk to you again next Wednesday. Thanks for listening, folks. We'll see you next time. Don't run from your memories and don't forget us. Oh, I get to say something. Holy crap. <laughs> well, um, stay classy, San Diego. Oh, that might be the best one we've gotten so far. Yeah, that's... <laughs> I'm mad I didn't think of that now. <laughs>